Tavis Smiley. This is KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to have you with us. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. In this hour, let me start with a question. How many of you have liberal arts degrees? If you're not, if you're not driving, raise your hands. I want to see. How many of you right now listening have a liberal arts degree? All right, I see your hands. <laughs> the persistent belief that liberal arts degrees are not financially viable has caused a significant reduction in liberal arts colleges and humanities degrees, despite the fact that 50% of U.S. employers acknowledge that individuals with liberal arts degrees possess invaluable job skills that others seem to lack. So, why the decline? What price does the nation pay for this vast reduction in fellow citizens with liberal arts degrees? And how do we address the reduction? Pleased to have in this hour, for the hour, Dr. Gail Green, author of the book, Immeasurable Outcomes, Teaching Shakespeare in the Age of the Algorithm. Uh, delighted to have you on, Dr. Green. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. And how are you? I'm well, thank you. If I complained, I'd be an ingrate. So I'm just uh, happy to be alive, happy to be on the air, and happy to be in dialogue with you for this hour. A lot to talk about. Let me start with this. Um, and we got an hour, so take your time. You don't have to speak in sound bites uh, in this uh, in this conversation, at least. Um, what what price? Uh, let me start with that question. What what price do you think ultimately the nation is going to pay for this vast reduction in liberal arts degrees? Well, it's a terrible reduction of our kind of conception of ourselves in a way. You know, when we whittle education down to job preparation, which is essentially, you know, what, what is trying to be done, um, it, it, it diminishes the individual and it diminishes the society. And it's actually very scary because we're going to be up against the future. Our young people, our graduates, are going to be up against huge challenges in the future. And they're going to need more than a degree in, you know, hotel management <laughs> um, or, you know, to face things like, the, you know, climate change, refugee populations, terrible wealth, you know, gap. Mm-hmm. I mean, the inequities between, you know, the, the rich and the poor are just growing and poverty and you know, I mean, they're, they're just not going to be prepared for it because job preparation is not education. Education is the development of a human being. Um, it's the development of certain kinds of mind that knows something, you know, that knows something about the past and knows something about the present, <laughs> the world, the world that we live in. Um, it's not just kind of whittling the imagination down to a narrow slot. Mm-hmm that serves the workforce. So we're diminishing ourselves, but we're also diminishing our chances for survival, I think, actually. Let me, uh, let, let me, let me, let me unpack, uh, give, give you a chance at least to unpack for us that, that theme right there. I could spend an hour, we could spend an hour, uh, you and me, just on this one, uh, this one notion uh, that you've already laid out, that we live in a society and this is nothing new, as you well know. I, many, many have been talking about this for years. Some people saw this coming, but we're now at a point where it's 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 undeniable, it's irrefutable. We live in a nation right now where we have, in fact, whittled education down to job preparation. Everything is about <laughs> what degree you get and how it's going to work for you in the job market. So everything about education these days is this singular linear path. Uh, to job preparation. Uh, take some time here. Tell me what the danger in that is. I, I get it, but I want to talk about 
Yeah, it's a huge danger. First of all, we don't know what the future is going to look like. It, things change so rapidly. I mean, within the last, what, month, tech has laid off 66,000 workers. Mm-hmm. Now, that was, you know, supposedly a sure thought. I mean, people are, like, you know, going for the STEM jobs, going for the tech job. I mean, you know, there is no safety. That's a huge problem right now. I mean, in my day... <laughs> You know, we sort of prepared for one job, which we assumed we would have most of our lives, if not all of our lives. Um, I did. I mean, I taught all my life, you know, mm-hmm. all my working life. Kids can't, that's not going to happen anymore. I mean, you just don't know what the future is going to look like. The world is changing so rapidly. So, you know, if you really want to code, if you love coding, go for it, you know. But if you're only doing it because you think it's going to be safe, that's a huge problem because mm-hmm. there is no safety. And so kids, I mean, people have to develop themselves. They have to, de- you know, somebody said you have to prepare for your fifth job, not your first job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you don't know what mm-hmm. that's going to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very fright- frightening thing today. But your best bet is to develop, first of all, to do something you love. Find something, because what you love is something you're going to be good at, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, if, you know, if you're doing coding because your parents, you know, are making you do it or you want, they want you to be an accountant or they want you to be a pharmacologist or, or a pharmacist, you know, you're not going to love it, you're not going to be good at it, you're not going to be happy. So you might as well do something that you are good at, and that means that you love it. Um, and, you know, <laughs> um, you know, Develop your mind. Develop yourself as a human being. Find out what you love. Find out what your best potential is. And that's I. And you know, the employers want what they call soft skills, and that means working with other people, communication, writing. I talked to a lot of alums when I did this book, and I heard about their their roots. You know, and they're circuitous. I mean, when you get a degree in liberal liberal arts, it's not like a degree in accounting where you become an accountant the next day. It's like you have to kind of find your way and feel your way. So it takes longer, and it's more circuitous, and you have to kind of. But, you know, they also talked about it as liberating because you, if you have the skill of writing, one of them said, you know, you're hireable. I mean, I mean somebody's going to want you. Mm-hmm. And, you. And you are free to try out different things, you know, mm-hmm. and not get trapped in the first thing that yeah. comes along. But these, I mean, the, the courses I taught were just, I loved them. I mean, because you could see the kids kind of like learning, you know. Yeah. You could see light bulb moments. You could see, you could almost hear a click when something, felt like, you know, went into place. Some point I was trying to get across or something, you know. And they can, you could see the writing improve. You could see their interest in the other students. That's really yeah. important. That's got They have to, they learn to interact and relate to others. Yeah. yeah that's got to, that's got to be a sweet spot for a professor or a teacher. Uh, it's got to be a sweet spot when you see that actually happening. Uh, our guest in this hour, Dr. Gail, Dr. Gail Green, uh, taught literature, humanities, and women's studies at Scripps College uh, for 40 years, uh, but she was disheartened to see essential subjects uh, discarded uh, as useless, frivolous, and fraudulent, hence the book that she's written, Immeasurable Outcomes, Teaching Shakespeare in the Age of the Algorithm. Uh, we are talking in this hour about the assault, as it were, um, uh, the lack of respect for liberal arts degrees. Uh, I was thinking when she said a moment ago that you have to at least start, uh, your goal ought to be to do that which you love. My mind went back to Les Brown, who, as you know, 
sat for a month-long radio residency on this station during February, Black History Month. The great uh, world-renowned motivator, Les Brown, was here every day during the month of February teaching a master class, motivating all of us to make the most of this year and to maximize this moment. And he said just last week, uh, a job is that for which you get paid. Your vocation, your calling is that for which you were made. Your job is that for which you get paid. But your vocation, your calling, is that for which you were made. You're Dr. Gail Green putting it in her own way. You have to do what you love. Uh, and yet, uh, for many people who are uh, trying to pursue what they love, uh, we have a job market now that doesn't seem to love what they do. <laughs> that is to say uh, that um, liberal arts degrees are taking it on the chin. Uh, we're talking about why in this hour, why we live in a nation where we have whittled education down to something as essential and basic as uh, job preparation. Education is a great deal more than that, and there's a lot more to talk about in this hour when we come forward with Dr. Gail Green on KBLA Talk 1580. Interrogating your assumptions and expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's get back to Dr. Gail Green, author of the book, Immeasurable Outcomes, Teaching Shakespeare in the Age of the Algorithm on KBLA Talk 1580. Uh, Dr. Green, um, hard to know where to go because there's so much to cover in this hour. I think I want to start with a couple of things you've already said uh, and interrogate those. Um, I mentioned a moment ago that you taught uh, for over 40 years. Uh, and I'm curious as to hear the backstory. I'm always fascinated by the backstory of how these things come to be. We'll talk about the book, of course, as we move through the hour. Uh, but tell me what you were seeing, um, what what brought you uh, to focus um, your lens on this particular project about the ways in which liberal arts degrees are being sort of put upon these days. Yeah. Um, I Well, you know, it's coming up to the end of my career or the end of my teaching, and I was seeing the uh, liberal arts get trashed. You know, it's not only in the liberal arts, it's really education it's that, that is being done down. Mm-hmm. Um, it is really in the hot seat. There's a war on education right now, and that includes K-12, too, which has been seized by so-called reform. Anyway, I saw this doing down of my subject, and I thought, wait a minute, you know, I never for a moment doubted that I was doing, and my students were doing essential work in our classes. It just seemed very, very vital and important, and here were people saying it was unimportant, it was frivolous, it was fraudulent, it was a waste of time and a waste of money, and I was really kind of scared, <laughs> and I took it personal, personally, in a way, it was my life's work, mm-hmm. you know, but so I started thinking about this a couple of years before I retired, which gave me a chance to talk to students and find out what they, why they were there and what they were doing and going to alumni events and talking to alums and stuff and trying to get a larger picture of it. And, you know, I was real, and I realized that the liberal, when I went to school, it was the so-called golden age of education. We were really in the sweet spot, you know. I mean, we were an ally of national security, national prosperity and prominence. And the post-war era, we felt really good about ourselves. This country really felt we'd pulled through, we'd won the war, we'd pulled through the Depression, and we'd done this by pulling together, you know. And that's really what the MAGA people don't realize. 
place, you know. Mm-hmm. That we, that what made us great was a spirit of cooperation and a spirit of social responsibility. And that's what, you know, made education so prosperous. It was funded, the government was really on its side, the, the money flowed. And I didn't know it, of course, you don't know that you're in a golden age, you don't know what age you're in when mm-hmm. you're living through it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I got to Berkeley the year after the UC master plan was set in place, and that guaranteed education to anybody who, you know, would work hard enough for it. I mean, so there was a system of community colleges, state colleges, and then the four-year UC, you know, systems, the really great, you know, among the greatest schools in the the world. (coughs) And you could get a degree, you know, anybody could get a degree for free. Mm -hmm. And I got I got two degrees from Berkeley for practically nothing, you know. Anyway, that was really something, but there was a spirit of generosity and a spirit, and that's what funded education. And then, you know, I looked around, you know, closing in on retirement, Mm -hmm. and thought, what happened? You know, where on earth did this spirit go? And what, what hit us, you know? And it just seemed to me that we had just flipped around into this kind of place of mean-spiritedness and defunding and austerity and, Mm. no, you can't, you know, from a spirit of can-do to a spirit of can't-do. And, you know, some of that's economic, of course, but but the defunding of the universities is just extraordinary and beyond the necessary. I mean, you know, it's like education is just always the first to be cut. Mm. Who needs education? You know, I mean, where did they get this idea? Well, they got this idea, a lot of it, from business, because business is short-term goals, you know, quarterly returns. Mm -hmm. Education is long-term. Education takes a while. You don't see it for maybe 30 years, you know, the effects of what you do. And we don't have time for that. We don't have, you know, (laughs) patience. We don't have the funding for it. So the the mean-spiritedness with which, you know, universities were defunded, for example, Berkeley, in 1970, 70% of its funding came from the state. Today, guess. (laughs) Some people say, I've seen in published figures 13%, but Mm. I've heard people say 9%. 9%? You know, this makes it public in name only. So this, anyway, so they, so then, you know, they have to raise tuition and then students go into debt and then higher education gets blamed. Well, who actually, or what actually is to blame for that situation? A little complicated. No. What, what What would you say? I'm. I'm. You're, you're fascinating me with everything that comes out of your mouth. I'm getting more and more <laughs> intrigued uh, by you uh, and your work and your witness. Uh, but I, but I'm I'm curious as to what you would say as as a long time educator. What would you say um, ought be done or can be done about this war on education? I love the way you put it, and I wouldn't disagree with you. Uh, it seems there is a war on education and a war on teachers for that matter. But what what's what's to be done about this war on education that you see, Dr. Green? You know, it's so tied in with something we call neoliberalism. I don't like that term because it's kind of a confusing term. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have anything to do with liberalism, it seems to me, but um, or progressiveness. But it, it's this, it's a spirit of me first, you know, get in, get in, get rich, get out, you mm-hmm. know, take what you can. And it's made 
the corporate culture really, you know, greed was not good in the years I was growing up. Greed was something that if you had it, you hid it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but greed became good in the 1980s. I mean, Reagan, Reagan essentially made war on education. I mean, his first act when he became governor of California was to fire Clark Kerr and say he was going to clean up the mess in Berkeley, you know. Mm-hmm. And and it was to it. He's a he's the person who introduced the idea of tuition. I mean, you know, the kids were you know they were they were up in arms, and it was a very it was a very um, you know unsettling time. But he you know he really sent in the troops, and he started charging you know I mean tuition, and then tuition just went up and up. So you've got it. I mean, it's this. I keep coming back to that term. That word mean spiritedness, mm-hmm. but it is. Um, why should I pay for your education? Why should I pay for anybody else's education? I don't have kids. You know, I don't have, you know, <laughs> my kids are through school. Or, you know, why should I pay for kids who aren't the same color as I am? There's an enormous element of racism in all this, too, in the, in the mean-spiritedness, you know, the defunding of the universities, mm-hmm. because the color of the population is gradually, you know, not as white as it was in the in the in the golden age of education when people were more likely to, you know, fund, be generous about funding. So it's tied into um, a spirit of the times, which is, which is pretty ugly, I think. Let me cut it. I don't, want, I don't cut you off, but I, I, I do want to get this in right now while, you, while you're on it. I don't want to get too far afield here. Um, you said something now as a longtime educator that I have not heard too many other people say as boldly uh, and as uh, in as transparent a way as you just laid it out. And it hit me. I'm sure the listeners heard it as well. It hit me. Um, to what degree would you draw a link between this war on education in real time? You talk about the golden age. To what extent would you draw a link between the attack on education, our, our unwillingness uh, to fund it? Um, to what extent would you draw a link between that and the color of the students that we are obliged to educate these days. I saw you put your finger on that, but I want to I want to stop it for a second. And let you draw down on that for me. Yeah, it's hard to disentangle the motives um, because it's also the spirit of why should I, you know, pay to educate anybody else's children? But I certainly think it's just it's been a major factor that you know the I mean. Yeah, politicians have stirred up a, cu- a culture of resentment, and it's not only politicians, but behind this is billions, billionaires, and Co- the Koch brothers, and the think tanks, and and people who have played on cultural insecurities and resentments, and just plain hatred, you know, mm-hmm. just whipped up uh, uh, the flames of hatred against targeted others, you know, us, them, and it's those people are taking away your jobs. The immigrants are coming in, and they're, you know, but they're not the threat, of course. I mean, it's actually corporate greed that's screwing them blue. But <laughs> it's much handier to, you know, point the finger at, at at others, and that's, I mean, that's where racism comes in. Um, entitlements, you know, mm-hmm. moochers, people are, you know. They're they're going to get something that's rightfully mine, mm-hmm. and and yeah, white supremacy is certainly a part of that. It's just um, 
But as I say, it's entangled with a larger yeah. kind yeah. of... Um, it's a kind of war against uh, all against all. It's, you know, rather than pulling together in a spirit of cooperation and social responsibility and trying to make a society that is better for everyone. And that really is the spirit in which, in which the, you know, the master plan of UC and Governor Brown, you know, before Reagan defeated him, was like, uh, you know, higher education is the cornerstone of democracy, he said, and it can make a good life, you know, for everyone, a fulfilled. So, you know, I mean, it's just incredible ideals compared to what we have now, which is take, 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 you know, and... I don't know. It's it's I, quite nasty. No, it it is quite nasty. Let me just say this. I'm I'm laughing here. Uh, you should see me furiously taking notes. I I walked in this studio today expecting that in hour two I'd be talking about Shakespeare, and what I'm getting, <laughs> what I'm getting is a is a master class on the culture of resentment, and I am tickled to death, and I'm loving every minute of this conversation, as I'm sure the audience is as well. And I promise we'll get back to Shakespeare in just a second. But these things are not, to your point, disconnected. You cannot disentangle these things. We do in fact live and you are you're, you're teaching a master class here uh, dr green this uh this is a culture of resentment uh and you are laying this thing out so beautifully I, i'm just uh i'm just enjoying the way you are unpacking uh how this connects to liberal arts which i'll get back to in just a second uh but your indictment uh, of this moment that we live in uh and um what's happening uh in our democracy uh and uh and all that you've laid out is just um it is uh it's got me thinking, and I'm, I'm, I appreciate you just being so open and so transparent uh, about the way you see the world as a longtime educator. It's a beautiful thing to hear uh, in this hour. Um, let, me, let me ask, since you mentioned Ronald Reagan a couple of times, and I've got just two minutes here before news, traffic, and sports. We'll continue this, I promise, on the other side of news, traffic, and sports in two minutes. Um, but since you mentioned Ronald Reagan a couple of times um, and Jerry uh, and uh, his, uh, his uh, Jerry, well, Jerry Brown's father, Edmund G. Pat Brown, um, uh, former governor of California, this assault on liberal arts, um, is this assault in real time a bipartisan assault or is it just one party? Well, it started out one party. It started out the Republicans, but it has, is, it's oozed into the Democratic Party, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. And it came in, I mean, where I saw it most starkly was, I'm sorry to say, in the Obama administration, which um, was where the Department of Education was essentially, well, it was staffed by Gates Foundation people, and Gates has a very technocratic mindset. Mm -hmm. Um, He understands management, he understands managerial, you know, he's an engineering problem. I mean, he's but he doesn't understand education. He dropped out after one, I think, one year at Harvard. Yep. Um, and he doesn't, he certainly doesn't understand the liberal arts. And so he, he turned, you know, he is kind of responsible for the Common Core, which has mm-hmm. saddled K-12 K- with a terrible teaching, a way of teaching, and completely alienating. You break down a literary text into skill sets. You know, what is the main point? What is the thesis? What is the take-home message? What is this? What are the figurative language? You rip it out of context. You teach Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, but you're not allowed to talk about the civil rights movement. Now, that's just nuts, you mm-hmm. know, because, I mean, what I tried to do as a teacher was to establish context, to get them to make connections between the text and the context and, you know, within the text of the, the, the part. I mean, it's just, you you can't, he he really wrecked higher, I mean, higher K-12, sorry. And Obama just 
let this happen. I mean, he just went along with it so that at the end of his time in office, he was talking like Gates. He was saying, we need, you know, to graduate workers who are job ready on day one. Well, wait a minute. Where did that come from? No, I, I, uh, I, I, I don't make, I mean to cut you off. I may get news traffic and sports out of the way, uh, uh, Dr. Green, but I, I, as you're talking about Obama, I, I was with our friend and brother Cornell West yesterday. Cornell West was in town yesterday, and he and I, um, had a few moments together, and I'm thinking of his uh, uh, his admonition that you cannot be so easily impressed with braininess. And one of my critiques of Obama and his education department and Arnie Duncan, who ran it, you and I are simpatico in this regard, is that people too oftentimes are over-impressed with braininess. I'll leave that hanging there for a second. Dr. Gail Green continues on KBLA Talk 1580 when we come. Find a righteous range and don't be afraid to say what you see for KBLA Talk 1580. Our guest in this hour is Dr. Gail Green. She uh, taught uh, for over 40 years at Scripps College teaching literature, humanities, and women's studies. Uh, and near the end of her, uh, her, her tenure uh, teaching all those decades, she started noticing um, something. Uh, what she noticed was that liberal arts was being... Uh, was being uh, treated um, disrespectfully, uh, that liberal arts was being regarded as useless and frivolous and fraudulent. And she argues in this new book uh, that there is a price to pay long term for a nation that uh, poo-poos uh, liberal arts education, as it were. Her book is called Immeasurable Outcomes, Teaching Shakespeare in the Age of the Algorithm. And I'm just delighted to be in dialogue with her in this hour. Before I get back to our conversation, Dr. Green, well, this is a part of our conversation. Uh, it's all about the listeners. And I want to read a, a listener comment and uh, uh, get your take on what uh, this listener has to say. Uh, Tavis, politics aside, part of the critique of liberal arts education validly relates to deficiencies in basic math and science education. Far too many poor folk and black and brown young people, especially girls and women, lack basic math and science skills. I imagine Dr. Green would agree that proponents of pure liberal arts education in the absence of exposure to STEM education are no different than proponents of pure job prep based education. Both are needed, not either or. Can she please discuss the path forward to creating hybrid programs that span STEM and Shakespeare? See, you see, Dr. Green, you see, you see, you see how smart yeah. my listeners are? Yeah, no, that's actually a really good question. You know, it's the thing about skills and what you mean by, you know, the STEM. I mean, what we need to do with students is engage them. And, you know, I mean, kids are naturally curious, but they're being turned off to education by this kind of drill and skill. And you can expose them to anything. You can expose them to Shakespeare or math and science and make them hate it with this drill and skill stuff because it doesn't get them where they live. I mean, you have to find a point of entry into their lives. It's pretty easy to do. I mean, we are teaching literature, it's extremely easy, you know, because literature is about people, it's about relationships, it's about things that go wrong in people's lives, <laughs> a, lot, a lot about disaster, um, tragedy. Um, and it, I think, you know, with science, you know, I mean, I mean, dinosaurs, stars, I mean, but that's not the way 
the schools are handling any subjects today, and that's why students are so disaffected, they're disconnected. You can't whip them into, you know, a mastery. And test scores, by the way, are, are useless. I mean, they, they, that's, that's like Gates' big hobby horse, you know. Mm-hmm. Let's look at the scores. Are great. They're going up or down. Well, you can make numbers move up and down on graphs. It doesn't mean anything because testing, what it tests is, it, it tests your zip code, essentially. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it correlates with zip code, if you've had an advantage, if you've had all the advantages, SATs, tutors, what, whatever, you know, you're going to, I mean, the test scores are going to be higher. It penalizes um, disadvantaged kids. So the test scores are, are, I mean, let me tell you my story about mm-hmm. a multiple choice. Yeah, so I had to take Physics 10 at Berkeley, and I just decompensated. You know, I couldn't understand it. After three weeks, I stopped going to class. I would not have taken... I've never done this before. I mean, this is like so unlike <laughs> me. But I just hit a wall. I mean, and it was, you know, siphoning off, you know, energy I needed for other... for things, classes I did like. So I heard that the exam was going to be multiple choice. And my roommate was in the same position. She'd done the same thing. So we decided, how multiple choice. We can do that. We'll just go in. <laughs> so we waltzed in. I mean, Really, this is what we did. We waltzed in ten minutes late. Every guy in the house was on us, you know. We sat down and we went out ten minutes later. After that, <laughs> every guy in the house on us. We just did random. We and you know, like, it must have been more. I mean, really, it must have been more than random a little bit because you know, by this time, I, I knew something about it. And, you know, but I got a C and she got a D, and and so that's performance indicator of a multiple choice. It just doesn't tell you. So it's the way we're teaching kids. We have to stimulate their curiosity. I mean, they're they're curious, and we have to go with that and use it. What you call Um, what you I hope. What you call multiple choice, I called multiple guests back in my day. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's just, it's, it's it's partly luck. It's partly, you know, I don't know, outwitting the thing, you know. But yeah. I knew, I mean, what I know about physics, you could, you, I mean, it wouldn't take a teaspoon, you know. Yeah. Uh, let, let, me, let, let me ask you a point blank, whether or not you think that reading Shakespeare is more important than learning how to code. Ah, uh, well, you know, learning... Reading Shakespeare, you're learning a kind of decoding. <laughs> you're learning how to read. <laughs> uh, I, I, I never, I mean, I never heard it quite put that way. Never heard it quite put that way, but I take your point. Go ahead, yeah. It's really um, interesting stuff because, you know, it's, first of all, it's pretty hard, you know, so you have to, like, focus. You have to attend to the words. It teaches you about attention, or at least, you know, you hope, one hopes. It, and, and memory, you have to sort of you know, remember what came before and how scenes relate to scenes. You don't get that kind of thing when you're reading online, you know, when you're scrolling. There's no beginning, there's no end. Um, So memory, attention, interpretation, you're reading about people who are pretty badly screwing up, to tell you the truth. I mean, Mm -hmm. when you read about, I mean, and the interesting thing about Shakespeare is you're reading about people who are reading badly, Mm. I mean, that's what's wrong with Othello and Macbeth and Lear. Um, you know, they, they, they're faced with, with 
human situations, and for one reason or another, they have a, they're blind to what's going on, and and that makes them vulnerable to manipulation. And that's what you're trying. To, I mean, that's what knowledge is supposed to protect you from, you know, mm-hmm. or or you know, learning how to interpret, learning how to listen, read between the lines. Here, I mean, they're just disastrous. These these tragic characters, and you know, Macbeth. Oh, don't listen to that woman. You know, <laughs> don't listen to those witches. They're not, they're trifling with you. Well, we live in a world where there's a lot of people trying to manipulate us. I mean, there is really PR, is advanced science, now we have influencers. I mean, there's all kinds of people who have agendas for us that may not serve us well. And it, I mean, this is the world we inhabit. Mm. So to learn to listen, to learn to decode in this, you know, really crucial way is a survival skill. I mean, yeah. I think... I, and and also it's a skill that may outlast have a longer longer shelf life than yeah. coding since it gives you this you know broad adapt adaptability flexibility versatility that's actually what employers are looking for yeah. um yeah. whereas yeah, I'm sorry. No, no. Speak, speaking of skill sets, it seems to me that one of the things and you talk about this in your in your book, immeasurable outcomes, teaching Shakespeare in the age of the algorithm, seems to me that one of the things that our society is advantaged by, vis-a-vis liberal arts uh, degrees, is that the liberal arts are inherently interdisciplinary. That is to say, they include, of course, the mm-hmm. arts, the humanities, mm-hmm. and some of the sciences and the social sciences, and that's a, a lot more broad uh, than stuff that's not under the liberal arts banner. Your take on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's this, I don't know, you know, I mean, I come back to these words, adaptability, versatility, and flexibility, because it's what employers use, you know. I mean, you look at, you look, you can synthesize information from various um, various areas. You can make connections. The, the liberal arts are a lot about making connections, this interdisciplinary, you know, reaching out and, you know, connecting um well, I mean, the humanities are, you know, by definition, I mean, they include the, the whole um, panoply of liberal arts. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it, it, 20%, 20% of CEOs have liberal, liberal arts degrees. That's an incredible figure. I mean, they're mm-hmm. likely to get you the jobs that are, cannot be outsourced or cannot, you can't be replaced by a machine. If you have this kind of, it's really a kind of armor. I mean, mm-hmm. it's actually... Mm-hmm puts you in better stead in some ways than a, than a coding. I mean, 66,000 tech workers laid off. I mean, I keep coming back to that figure because one of them was a friend of mine's son, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he got a job at, you know, Meta, and then Meta got, you know, kind of tanked. Um, but it's, uh, you know, the other thing is there's quality, there's quantity, but there's also quality, and quality of life issues are... Liberal arts, well, people who, you know, major in liberal arts go out, tend to get the, uh, jobs that have more sort of social connection, more sort of meaning. Mm-hmm. And often they're okay with a lower salary because they feel that their job has social significance, like teaching, for example. Mm-hmm. Do you know what profession has the lowest rate of suicide? <laughs> I think I just gave you the answer to that. Ding, ding, the ding, ding, ding. Rate 
teaching. I mean, teaching, you know, it's so hard. It's so underpaid. It's so stressful. I mean, teachers are just, you know, we know what, what a teacher's life is like. I'm talking about K-12. Sure. They have the lowest rate of suicide. See, Dr. Green, you're, you're, yeah. you're, t- you're telling me stuff today that I, that's why I love these conversations with these liberal arts people, right? Because <laughs> you learn so much stuff that you otherwise wouldn't know. Um, who knew? I mean, I've had so many conversations with teachers. I've said many times on this program that I think teachers are the most undervalued resource in our entire society. No question, no debate, hard stop for me. They are the most undervalued folk in this entire society. But I'd never uh, I, I considered that. I never knew that factoid. Uh, that the lowest rate of suicide uh, is amongst teachers. It makes sense. Um, they care about what they're doing. Uh, they're making a difference in the world. And I never furthermore thought of liberal arts degree uh, degrees uh, as armor, but I, I take her point. Uh, a liberal arts degree may be the armor that you need in the coming years. And you heard her say earlier in this conversation, it ain't the first job you got to prepare for. It's the fifth job. because she didn't say ain't because she's a professor and I'm not. Uh, but you take my point. <laughs> More with Dr. Gail Green when we come forward on KBLA Talk. Greenman, you suggested earlier in this conversation that a liberal arts education can be liberating. I think I take your point, but unpack that for me a bit more, that a liberal arts education can be more liberating than other uh, disciplines. Well, I mean, one of the ways we just talked about was you're, you're making connections with other people, you know. Um, but also that you, you, you know, it may give you more choices. You don't get locked in. This I got from my, you know, graduates. I mean, it, I, I didn't get locked into the first thing. I tried out different things, and I felt I was able to do that because I knew how to write. I knew how to communicate. When it came to marketing, I knew how to, you know, do a report. I knew how to synthesize materials. So in that that sense, it's actually um, does often give a kind of range of choices that other majors don't don't give. But it's it's also you want the inside of your mind to be a place, an interesting place, a place to live. And I think a lot of us really found this out in the in the pandemic, you know, mm-hmm. the lockdown, where we were thrown back on our own resources. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people said, "Well, thank God, you know, I knew how to write, you know, I knew how to read, you, and I wrote my way." But, yeah, but, but but you wouldn't say you're biased against math and science, would you? Some listeners might take it that way. Oh no, good lord! I mean, I you know I've done I've actually done science writing much more than <clears throat> most English professors. I did two books. I did a biography of a, a woman scientist, a British radiation epidemiologist, who discovered that low dose radiation was much more dangerous than you know we were being told, and it took me way into. Um, I mean, she was there. She was still alive. She was quite, el- you know, she was 88 when I met her. But she, it took me way into science. And I also wrote a book on insomnia, which I suffer from. Mm-hmm. And it, well, it took me into the science of sleep. And I, you know, my dad was a doctor. I mean, I sort of come by it naturally in yeah. a way. Um, I, oh, certainly not. You know, um, I, I think there is a prejudice in some areas of the humanities against the science sciences, and I think that's terrible. I mean, yeah. I think that, you know, we should be knocking down walls, not building walls. And, yeah. um, I mean, I, I love it when, you know, like doctors become writers, and they're, they're often very good. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. look at uh, Gawande's book on, uh, you know, Being Mortal. God, mm-hmm. that's one of the best books I've read in a long time. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's it's anyway. No, yeah. not not Do- at all. I take your um, point. I take your point. Dr. Green's uh, most recent book, the one we're discussing in this hour, is called "Immeasurable Outcomes: Teaching Shakespeare 
in the age of the algorithm, the book that she referenced a moment ago, uh, given that she acknowledges she is uh, an insomniac, that book is a memoir. It's called <laughs> Missing Persons, a Memoir and Insomniac. Missing Persons, a Memoir and Insomniac. If you've been turned on by this conversation, uh, by her by her intellect <laughs> and by her worldview uh, and by her uh, her uh, her championing liberal arts and want to learn more about her, that's a good book to, to read. It's called Missing Persons, a Memoir and Insomniac. Uh, our remaining moments with Dr. Gail Green when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. Right now. It does indeed for at least another four minutes, which is all I have left in this hour with Dr. Gail Green, author of the book Immeasurable Outcomes, Teaching Shakespeare in the Age of the Algorithm. <clears throat> Dr. Gail Green, I, I guess the exit question, one of my uh, couple of exit questions, <laughs> knowing me, um, is whether or not you see um, any disruption in this trend. Um, I mentioned earlier that employers, half of them at least acknowledge it, that individuals, they acknowledge that is, <laughs> that folk with liberal arts degrees possess invaluable job skills that um, others do not. Uh, and yet um, this this notion that liberal arts degrees don't lead to money takes us back to your original thesis that we've whittled down education to something uh, to no more rather uh, than job preparation. So my, my question is whether or not you see any way that this um, this notion, this narrative, if I can put it that way, about liberal arts education uh, gets upended in the years to come. Well, people have to dig a little deeper than the rhetoric that, you know, is in the air. And it's hard because that rhetoric has so much sort of money and power behind it. Um, you know, skills, you know, for jobs. And, you know, when you've got Bill Gates and Obama and people like that pushing you in a certain way, you've got to, like, back up and say, wait a minute, you know, uh, here's a quote. I just want to read this quote. This mm-hmm. is a guy named Ben Schmidt. The difference between humanities majors and science majors in median income and unemployment seems to be no more than the difference between residents of Virginia and North Carolina. If someone said to me not to move to Charlotte because no one there can make a living, I would never take them seriously. I mean, that's how overblown this narrative has become. And I think part of the part of what we need to do is like question sources you know mm-hmm. when we read an op-ed i mean because these people have enormous power in the media so when you read an op-ed piece find out about the writer find out what think tank is funding you know him and what billionaire is funding that think tank mm-hmm. i mean i mean you've got to kind of question you got to dig beneath the surface to find out that this this is way exaggerated, way overblown. And I just keep coming back to 66,000 tech workers laid off in the last month. I mean, it's just not. There is no security, and so therefore human development, and that human development was the original, according to the United Nations. That was sort of the mandate. We were supposed to be developing ourselves as human beings. That is what we, sh- what we yeah. should be doing to our- with ourselves and then with our society, I mean, finding jobs that, you know, that we can, <laughs> we can relate to where we're, we feel that we're doing something that, you yeah. know, even though we're not a CEO or being, bringing in big bucks, we, ha- we are making a difference in the world. We can, we can, uh, and the world really needs that. <laughs> no, we can, we can debate forever, uh, um, and I'm sure we will in this country, <laughs> the purpose of education. Uh, but uh, I'm wondering whether or not you think that this decline that liberal arts has, in fact, been experiencing can be turned around in the 60 seconds. I have left here. Yeah, my God, that's a question. Um, uh, 
<laughs> I just keep coming back to saying there is no safety. And yeah. so if you think you're preparing for something, I mean, hotel management, along came Airbnb, you know, nursing. <laughs> that was sure. Sure. I mean, along came the pandemic. And who, yeah. I mean, and nurses are just so, so very unhappy. You know, I mean, so there, you prepare for something and it, and it just may or may not happen. So therefore, what you need to do is prepare yourself, is develop yourself as much as you possibly mm-hmm. can in, in many nope. ways as you can. I take Finding point. out who you are, who you are, you know, what you could do best. Nope, that's the, uh, that is the value of a liberal arts degree. And I, um, I take your point and hear you loud and clear. The book is called Immeasurable Outcomes. Teaching Shakespeare in the Age of the Algorithm. The author of that book is Dr. Gail Green, who taught at Scripps College for over 40 years. Uh, and I'm uh, delighted to have had her on for this hour, and I appreciate the book and hope you appreciated the conversation. Dr. Green, good to have you on. All the best to you in the coming years. We appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. When we pleasure come, to talk to you. Pleasure, pleasure's all mine. Thank you. When we come forward in our third and final hour, well, stick around. I'll tell you about it in just a second. You're listening to KBLA Talk 50.